ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. I'm Selena Green. This is the South Australian Country Hour. I hope you're keeping cool. In a moment, I'll take you to Evoke Ag, which is happening over in WA this week. The Federal Ag Minister's there. He's been talking on, amongst other things, live export. And you'll hear what he has to say in just a sec. And calling women in ag. There's some research underway into why farmers, but female farmers in particular, do what they do and how you can be better supported to do it. So I've conducted quite a number of interviews now with farmers from right across the state um, and typically they are the, the male farmers or what we typically see as what a farmer is. And I guess that's also part of motivating the women's side of it is disentangling this tension, I guess, between how do we define what a farmer is do women see themselves as farmers and how do we you know, sort of navigate that space? That's all to come. If you want to talk back, talk back to me, you can on this number, 1300 991 throughout the program. Uh, the text line is 0467 991. Well, first, the Federal Ag Minister, Murray Watt, was in Perth yesterday attending Evoke Ag 2024. It's a big event. It brings together leaders and changemakers in the agriculture, food manufacturing, research, innovation and policy sectors to build connections and hopefully build a more resilient, productive and profitable ag sector and value chain. While in Perth, the Minister met with industry leaders to discuss the big ag issues, including the phasing out of live sheep exports, a meeting that was snubbed by both the President of the WA Farmers and the state's Pastoralists and Graziers Association. Murray Watts says the meeting went ahead regardless and he said it was very productive. I was obviously a little surprised that uh, people like John Hassel and Tony Seabrook, who demanded the meeting, then didn't see fit to turn up and left it to their vice presidents, but that's up to them. But look, I thought it was a very productive discussion with people from the Western Australia's Farmers Federation, the local live export industry and the WAPGA as well. Um, We covered a number of issues, obviously the live sheep export policy of the government. We also discussed the recent incident regarding the MV Bahija and also had a good chat about biosecurity and, and chemical regulations. So, you know, I don't know that people got every answer that they were looking for, but I think it's always productive to have those discussions. In the PGA's and WA Farmers' defence, though, they were saying it was only half an hour. They felt it was a bit rude and a bit tokenistic, and they would be happy to participate in something that's a bit more of a meaningful discussion. Do you think they've got a point there? Well... I've already met with representatives from those organisations on at least five occasions over the last 18 months uh, and uh, I was certainly happy to meet with them again while I was in Perth. I think I've met with representatives from those groups almost every time I've been to Perth over the last 18 months and as I say, to me it's a surprising thing to do, to complain in the media and demand a meeting and then not bother to come along for it. I'm not sure that's how their members would see good representation uh, but again that's for those organisations to work out. But look, you know, as you can imagine, uh, there's, a, there's always a large number of people who are keen to meet with me, to, to put their opinions, to discuss their views. I was happy to make time available for those groups uh, and, uh, you know, it's up to them who they decide to send along. One of the points yesterday from Tony Seabrook from the PGA on the Country Hour was he said you've had the report into the phase-out of the live sheep trade for about four months now. 
He's wondering why you haven't released it. And in his words, he thought you were, it's buried under cabinet confidentiality. Is it? Well, obviously, this is a very significant decision that the government needs to make. We absolutely intend to honour the commitment that we took to the last two elections to phase out live exports of uh, sheep by sea. Uh, But we've always said that we want to consult with people about the timeframe for that phase out and the way in which we do it. Uh, And the more that we listen to people and talk with them about how we do this, the better the outcome will be. Obviously, for a decision that's as significant as this, it's going to take quite a deal of government decision making. There's lots to consider. Um, There's potentially budgetary implications as well that we need to consider as a government and weigh them up against other priorities. Um, So I do understand that people are eager to see a resolution of this and for us to give them certainty and I'm keen to do that as soon as we can. Do you have a time frame? I think a lot of people in the industry would like that certainty. For sure. No, look, I understand people are really keen to get a decision and, and I'd like to be able to do that sooner rather than later. But equally, we need to consider this properly as a government and make sure that we come out with the right answers. Uh, but uh, I've already committed that we will be releasing the report publicly when I make an announcement. Uh, so hopefully we will be able to make a decision and announce a decision before too long. What would you have to say to someone who's younger in the industry, in the livestock industry, beyond just sheep? Let's say you're a 22, 24-year-old involved in the cattle industry and they're seeing all of the hoo-ha associated with this ship that was delayed here in Fremantle, etc. And the nervousness surrounding not only the sheep trade but also the, the live cattle trade. What would you say to them? Yeah, we've made absolutely clear that we will not be closing down the live cattle export industry. I've said that repeatedly, say it again now. Um, our position has only ever been about the live sheep industry and that's because we think that that industry has lost community support and we don't see live cattle that way. The reality is that most of the journeys that live cattle take are much shorter than what we see from live sheep. The animal animal welfare experience or conditions are therefore better. Cattle tend to be much hardier species than sheep. Um, So there's a range of reasons that we see that as a very distinct trade and that's why we support the live cattle export industry. In fact, if you speak to some of the senior people in the live cattle export industry, they'll tell you that I've been working really hard with them recently uh, to ensure that the Indonesia trade remains open. Um, So I I don't think there can be any doubt about our government's commitment to the live cattle uh, export industry. Just on a different point to do with the biosecurity levy, you mentioned some changes last week, so some of the details starting to to unravel as to how farmers may be paying their fair share of the biosecurity levy. But the devil's always in the detail as to who is actually going to be paying what. When will those sorts of details be revealed? Yeah, so we're working through that with industries right now. And again, I would expect that to become pretty clear quickly. The intention is to introduce this levy from the 1st of July. uh, And we need to get legislation through the parliament in order to do so. So obviously, more of those details will need to be provided very quickly. I remain of the view uh, that... Just as we're asking the average taxpayer to pay a lot more for biosecurity and just as we're charging importers more than they've ever been charged before for biosecurity services, I think it is reasonable to ask farmers to make a very modest contribution towards biosecurity, which is the foundation of their livelihoods. You know, we all know that if we have a major biosecurity outbreak here in Australia, that will wipe out farmers' livelihoods altogether. Um, So I think it's fair and reasonable to ask farmers to make what is, it's basically a 6% contribution to the cost of our biosecurity services. Taxpayers and importers are wearing the overwhelming majority of this funding. But having said that, 
we were willing to listen to the agriculture sector about the design of that levy and we took on board some of their feedback that they thought the original design, which was based on levies uh, that producers already pay, the feedback was that that wasn't a fair way to go about charging this and that we should instead look at the overall contribution of a particular sector to agricultural production and then charge a particular sector that proportion of the overall fee. So what we're doing is coming up with a methodology that's based on what's called the gross value of production of a particular sector, the cattle sector's contribution, the hort sectors, the sheep sectors, the grain sectors, and then splitting the cost of that of that farmer contribution across those sectors. So the feedback we've had so far is that people have welcomed that change, and I'd be hopeful that we can keep working with industry to make sure it's as fair and equitable as possible. And the advisory body as far as how the money is eventually spent, when will that sort of detail come out? Yeah, again, I'd be, expect to be able to do that very soon. Yeah. Uh, you might recall that when we announced these changes in last year's budget, I said that it was very important to me to make sure that farmers and, and the sector generally had more input into how we do our biosecurity services than what we've had in the, in, the, in the past. And one way we intend to do that is to establish a proper advisory group that will have representatives from the sector to give us their advice about how we can do biosecurity better uh, and how we can protect this incredible industry for the future. That's Murray Watt there. He was speaking to Richard Hudson at the Evoke Ag event, which is happening this week in Perth. It's just going on 14 minutes past 12. Well, female farmers have been meeting this week to speak with a researcher about their roles on farm and why they do what they do. Women Together Learning have partnered with researcher Dr Emily Buttle from the University of Adelaide to look at the underlying motivation behind why farmers farm. The workshops this week are aiming to find ways to support women in agriculture in particular. And Dr Buttle is speaking here with Brooke Neindorf about what she hopes that she can take away from these get-togethers. Yeah, so I'm currently doing a project that's capturing women's perspectives who are involved in farming businesses across our state. Uh, I was reflecting on my own position having married a farmer in you know, recent times and being an academic with my academic hat on. A lot, a lot that's been written about how women's, uh, what women's contribution is to farming businesses, uh, particularly beyond sort of the smaller um, enterprises that do paddock-to-plate type stuff so it's more what in the in the typical farm the what what are women's contributions in that space so I was really motivated to try and get some data um, this project's obviously being supported by the Department of Primary Industries and Regions so I thought it was also really important to give them some insight into how our modern farming businesses are running particularly women's involvement in that space is it essentially looking at why farmers farm yeah so the broader project is capturing why farmers farm I guess the component that we're really focusing on this week is the women's perspective. So I've conducted a few, inter- well, quite a number of interviews now with farmers from right across the state, um, and typically they are the, the male farmers or what we typically see as what a farmer is. And I guess that's also part of motivating the women's side of it is disentangling this tension, I guess, between how do we define what a farmer is? Do women see themselves as farmers? And how do we you know, sort of navigate that space? Does that change from maybe a female who has grown up on a farm and is maybe taking over a family farm to a female that's come in and and maybe married a farmer? Yeah, it's really early days to pinpoint exactly where we're at at the moment. But what I'm finding is that it really is the individual's perspectives and how they want to define themselves and see themselves. What I found quite interesting is that some women don't necessarily see themselves as farmers, but perhaps business managers or CEOs of these farming businesses. So really it's this disentangling of what we see as traditional farming roles, which are those that we see farmers in the paddock in the tractor or, you know, mustering sheep or picking fruit, 
or versus those non-traditional farming activities which are becoming more and more necessary for our farming businesses like bookwork, compliance, um, all of those sorts of farm assurance schemes and those sorts of things, which typically we see those the women assuming those sorts of responsibilities within the farming businesses and the pressures that are, are on women to do that is certainly increasing. And do you think it'll change from sort of generation to generation as well? Absolutely. I think um, a lot of the conversations that we've been having are around the generational differences and the cultural differences between those generations. I think there was a lot of conversation yesterday in Cal about how the older generations, it was seen, you know, the women are in the household and that's their responsibility, whereas now we're certainly shifting towards women having paid employment, having worked off farm. They may have come back or married a farmer and decided to contribute their time to the business. So these women are coming to these farming businesses with a whole suite of skill sets that they uh, are invaluable, really, to the business. And you touched on this a bit before, Emily, but what are you hoping to capture this week at these workshops? I guess for me, I spend a lot of time in, in agricultural circles, particularly women in ag, and we know there's a lot of anecdotal evidence on these things, but it's con- um, capturing it in a concrete way that's actually tangible and, and, you know, that physical report that kind of says, yes, this is actually real, it's not just anecdotal, um, that's really motivating me for this week. Yeah, so my name is Sally Merkett and I'm the Chief Inspiration Officer at Inspire Ag based in Tasmania, servicing clients nationally. My role this week is to support Emily in um, providing... Um, I suppose an incentive in terms of um, Emily's doing a focus group to find out the information that she needs to be able to um, deliver on a research project and um, you know feed that information back to hopefully um, inform policy, better policy for farming women. My role in all of this is to provide uh, provide a workshop um, that teaches the participants the importance about relationship-focused leadership um, over transactional leadership um, and also the importance of um, communication and, and you know, the participants that we've dealt with so far have been, um, a lot of them have been in family farming businesses. Um, So, you know, this sort of stuff is really important, whether it's succession, whether it's managing a team or whether it is um, dealing with a, a partner in a farming partnership. Sally Murphy there of Inspire Ag, and she was speaking with Brooke Nindorf. There are two more workshops happening this week. There's one at Pinaroo tomorrow and another one at Narracourt this Friday, and you can register for them on the Women Together Learning website. Just pop that in your search engine. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Uh, time for the Wednesday Market Reports. Elsie Adamo again is bringing you this week's Dublin results. Hi, Elsie. Good afternoon, Selena. Numbers reduced as agents offered 9,000 lambs and 2,000 sheep. Quality was fair to poor across the lamb offering as two-score merinos continued to flood the market. Trade crossbred lambs were in short supply. However, quality here, again, was only fair with very few ideal trade lambs on offer. One additional buyer joined the usual buying group as prices struggled to maintain a generally firm trend, with prices easing in later sales under indifferent competition. Mountain quality was again generally good, with prices here remaining firm on the recent depressed rates. Extremely light lambs sold from $10 to $66, as light lambs ranged from $25 to $110. 
Light trade weight lambs sold from $52 to $124. Medium weights ranged from $79 to $158, with heavy weights selling from $75 to $180, and extreme heavy weights $180 to $190 per head. Hoggets were also yarded in large numbers, and these sold from $40 to $114 per head. Medium weight ewe mutton sold from $20 to $51, with heavy weights making $48 to $70 per head. Ram lambs sold $48 to $85, with heavy rams selling from $10 to $30 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers increased this week as agents offered 527 live weight and open auction cattle, along with 125 open auction calves. Quality was mixed with more two-score cattle in the offering. Competition was generally good from the usual buying group, with restockers more active throughout the sale. Prices eased marginally for most classes except for heifers that were generally overlooked and eased by 20 to 30 cents per kilogram. More cows came forward and these sold firm on recent sales. Villa steers sold from 240 to 290 cents as villa heifers ranged from 192 to 208 cents per kilogram. Yearling steers ranged from 224 to 306 cents, as yearling heifers made from 178 to 280 cents per kilogram. Grown steers sold from 158 to 306 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 178 to 200 cents per kilogram. Light cows sold from 170 to 214 cents, with heavy cows selling from 212 to 244 cents per kilogram. Bulls sold from 200 to 242 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Elsie. And Peter Kerr has the results for the Mount Gambier sale. Hi, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for the 21st of February. Numbers fell again this week with a drop of over 2,000 cattle in two weeks as agents showed a 543 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to a smaller field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker competition. Quality was mixed as the market sold to mostly dearer rates this week. Billet steers to the trade lifted 20 cents as they sold from mostly 280 to 350 cents with a high of 370 cents as feeder orders operated from 252 to 275 cents a kilogram. Billet heifers to the trade made from 255 to 340 cents with feeders active from 222 to 255. Yearling steers to trade buyers made from 210 to 330 cents to rise up to 30 cents. Similar heifers from 242 to 332. Feeders operated on the steers from 244 to 300 cents and on the heifers from 245 to 275 cents a kilogram. Grown steers and bullocks also lifted with a rise of 20 to 30 cents as they sold from 275 to 305. Feeder support from 248 to also 305. Grown heifers saw trade support from 230 to 291 with feeders operating from 280 to 292 as manufacturing steers sold from 210 to 243 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows rose seven cents. They made from 222 to 256 cents with lighter lots, making from 160 to 210. As bulls range from 170 to 200 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Peter. That takes us almost to 24 minutes past 12. ABC iView melts the heart with Better Date Than Never. I would like to kiss someone. Take five with Zan Rowe. Yeah, there's a real kind of declaration to finding the joy in life. Film stars don't die in Liverpool. We had fun, mate. Yeah, we did. Starstruck. Just a little kiss. It was a pip. Marriage. She's got such dreadful taste in men. Line of beauty. You love him, don't you? Yes, I do. ABC iView. 
always free, always heartfelt. You're with Selena Green here on the South Australian Country Hour. It is time to head to the Weather Bureau and Mark Analak is our forecaster today. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon, Selena. It's a pretty warm one across much of the state today. Another warm one, yes. It was a very warm night across much of the state, particularly here in Adelaide. Uh, it was very, very warm. Um, look, still a very hot conditions out there, very dry. Um, sky's pretty much clear right across the state. Uh, looking back at the last sort of 12, 24 hours, we did have some low cloud about Air Peninsula. That sort of cleared off pretty quickly this morning. Um, and we've had some thunderstorms about the far northeast corner of the state. Uh, and while those thunderstorms have temporarily cleared from the state, we do see some cloud up there still. And there is the potential for some showers and thunderstorms to redevelop about the far northeast corner of the northeast pastoral district um, this afternoon. Those showers and thunderstorms could stretch a little bit further south over the northern Flinders ranges. We're starting to see some convection over the northern Flinders at the moment, so um, there's, there's potential for some showers and thunderstorms to stretch as far south as the northern parts of the Flinders district. Elsewhere in the state, a very warm day is expected, very hot day across the rest of the state, and mostly cloud-free. Temperature-wise at the moment, uh, Roseworthy is, is sitting on 39 degrees as we speak. Uh, elsewhere, Yunter around 37, so too Snowtown. Uh, generally, temperatures are up in the 30s, uh, sort of low to mid 30s across the state. Tomorrow is our day of interest, really. Uh, we're likely to see elevated fire danger ratings across much of the northern agricultural areas, um, particularly. Uh, and that's because we have freshening northerly winds ahead of a, uh, a strong southerly wind change that will pass over the state during tomorrow afternoon. So a very hot night in store for, for South Australia again tonight, leading to a hot day again tomorrow with those northerly winds. And then that southerly change will push through, uh, driving a, a fresh, cooler southerly flow. A bit gusty at times as well. So all those elements of heat, wind uh, and clear skies uh, leading to what we expect is a sort of another fire weather day tomorrow. So keep an eye out for um, any fire bans that the CFS may be issuing this afternoon. Um, that change is expected to bring some pretty cool conditions for Friday. Uh, a fresh southerly flow will bring some light shower activity to southern coastal fringes, cloudy conditions to southern agricultural areas, um, but that's about as far north as it'll go. I think we're still expecting some uh, sunny skies through the northern agricultural and pastoral districts on Friday, but temperatures will be significantly cooler on Friday and, and below average uh, for much of the state uh, as that change continues to move northwards into the into the northeast pastoral district on Friday. By Saturday, any shower activity that was around the coast will have disappeared. Probably still be partly cloudy about the southern coasts, but uh, we should be pretty much dry across the state. Uh, winds will start to move from southeast to northeasterly during the weekend, and temperatures will continue to rise through the weekend into the early part of next week. Um, so it's been a very dry month for, for some parts of the state and it looks like it'll head that way uh, through, through to the end of this month. So in short, uh, a very hot night in store for, for South Australians again tonight. A hot day tomorrow with increased fire danger ratings, freshening winds, a cooler southerly change bringing uh, temperatures well down on Friday, Selena. All right, thanks for that, Mark. Stay cool. Thank you.
Mark Analak there from the Weather Bureau. Now the forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow. For the Upper Western District, expecting a mostly sunny day with a slight chance of a shower in the northeast in the afternoon and evening, near zero chance of rain elsewhere. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening. Winds will be east to northeasterlies, 15 to 20 k's now, turning north to northwesterly, 15 to 25 k's now during the morning. Overnight temperatures in the Upper Western District falling into the low to mid-20s. Daytime temperatures reaching into the mid to high 30s. For the Lower Western District, tomorrow a sunny day with a chance of a thunderstorm in the far east in the late afternoon and evening. Northeasterly winds around 15 to 20 kilometres per hour. They'll turn north to northwesterly and drop down to around 15 to 25 kilometres an hour during the morning. Overnight temperatures in the low 20s. Daytime temperatures for the Lower Western District will reach up to around 36, up to potentially 42 degrees, another hot one. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. Up next, well, there has been an independent panel review into well, the way that uh, costs are recovered out of the South Australian seafood sector. So what changes will and won't the government be implementing? And interesting, one of the recommendations was around the possibility of a recreational fishing licence. So what has the government decided there? Well, stick around. You'll find out in this coming half an hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Afternoon. Unfortunately, it is crisis time for some in the Riverland wine industry. I'll bring you up to speed on what's happening there in just a moment. And do you love salt? You know that a lot of salt that you come into contact with, and whether it's in your food or in agricultural products, a lot of it comes out of a salt field right here in South Australia. So pretty much from when you get up in the morning to when you go to sleep at night, you've come into contact with salt, whether it's the water you drink, products that you put on your toast, butter, the actual bread itself. During the day, there'll be some contact that you would have had with products that are made from salt. Our customers are in all of those segments. You're going to go on a tour of that salt field before the one o'clock news. My talkback number for this half an hour is 1300 222891 or send me a text. 0467 922891 is the number. This is all after news headlines with Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, a crisis meeting of wine grape growers and industry heads will be held in South Australia's Riverland today to address the struggles created by low grape prices. Grapes are selling for as low as $120 a tonne, the same level as in the 1970s, with production costs estimated to be about double that figure. The issue is present across the world and growers are asking for government intervention to keep them afloat. South Australian local governments could soon be banned from imposing curbside rubbish collection fees as part of a suite of changes proposed by the state government. The potential reforms, which will undergo consultation, would also include mandating a three-bin system for all metropolitan councils and prohibit the recombining of waste from curbside collections. Last year, an idea from South Australia's Green Industries Department to impose a pay-as-you-throw collection system received public outcry and was ruled out by 
the Premier. And the Woolworths CEO Brad Banducci has announced he'll retire later this year. The Woolworths Group has announced Mr Banducci has given notice of his intention to retire and by agreement with the board will leave in September. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman with your headlines. Well, seafood, it's a huge industry here in South Australia, worth more than $500 million and a big employer. But for the past 20 years, the seafood and aquaculture industries have been feeding funds back into the state's coffers through a cost recovery model. It funds things like management, research and compliance. Well, that model has recently been under independent review to see if it can be done better. And this week, the state government announced which of the review panel's recommended changes it will and won't be implementing. Among those is a consideration of a recreational fishing licence. I spoke with the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, who said the review was a pre-election commitment. It's something that certainly does cause a lot of uh, discussion and debate. Uh, it has been something of a, an onerous process where people uh, in many of the fisheries every year are going through a process to, uh, to feed into the setting of the cost recovery fees. So it's a commitment that we made um, and I'm really pleased that that commitment has now been fulfilled with the release of these two reports. So for those outside the industry, just give us a, a brief idea of what the, the premise of this is, how these costs are recovered and, and what they're put to use for. The basic premise is that uh, the fish in the sea in particular are a community resource which is owned by all South Australians. So where we have a commercial fishing sector, that obviously comes with some costs to government, so things like compliance, um, research to ensure sustainability of fish stocks, a number of other things. Uh, and that is partly because we have a commercial fishing sector. Now, of course, that sector also provides benefit to the state, provides jobs and so on. So the idea is that uh, costs that are incurred because we have a commercial fishing sector are recovered from the commercial fishing sector. So that's the basic premise. And one of the things that the uh, independent panel found was that there was, on the whole, widespread support for that as, as a policy, as an underlying policy. But what it did find is that uh, there are still some things that could be improved, that in some parts of the industry there's not a level of understanding so much as they would like in terms of what the cost recovery process covers. Uh, and they want more transparency around those costs. Uh, but interestingly, they also found that there wasn't really a better system in other jurisdictions that would provide better outcomes for South Australia. So there's no sort of wholesale changes needed. We don't need to turn the whole thing upside down and start again. Uh, but, of course, there are opportunities to continually improve. Because there was uh, consideration of shifting to a, a GVP or a gross value of production-based model, which some other states do implement, but there were some concerns around possible inequities with that. So it, you won't be shifting to... You won't be shifting that model from the way it is currently collected? That's right. Um, to be honest, it wouldn't have surprised me if the outcome of the review panel had recommended uh, shifting to GVP. But what they found that there's no support from industry for a GVP model, even amongst those fishery sectors where the total cost recovered is actually quite a high percentage of GVP. So even though some of those sectors might have been, if you like, better off under the GVP model, uh, there wasn't widespread support from industry for that. And essentially, there would have been winners and losers. So some would have been paying a lot more than they are now and some would have been paying less. But the, the point that you're referring to there is that um, if there was a uniform percentage of GVP, that's essentially cross-subsidisation across the different sectors. So uh, that can disincentivise the investment in industry was one of the things that they found. 
uh, but also that idea of cross-subsidies didn't have industry support. So the method itself won't change. What will change? What recommendations will the government accept and implement? And you touched on that before, is that a lot of those are around more transparency and accountability as to how those funds are are being utilised? That's right. So the opportunity to benchmark things like um, the compliance processes, to benchmark the research. Uh, and I think that's really, really important. Uh, Sadi, who does a lot of our research, and Perza, who's responsible for compliance, they're very happy to be benchmarked against other jurisdictions. Uh, and that way, you know, if they're, uh, if they're doing very well, we'll all know. Uh, if there's areas that they can improve, then we'll all know as well, and those things can then be implemented. Uh, but that benchmarking, I think, is an important part of, uh, you know, having a mutual understanding from industry. Now, one of the other things that uh, we're considering, and this will be uh, a matter of discussing in depth with industry, is instead of having the annual cost recovery cycle, which is in place in a number of the fisheries, to actually uh, extend that out. Uh, the suggestion as a discussion point in the, uh, the government response to the panel report is that we look at a five-year cost recovery cycle, but that's something to be discussed with industry. And that would involve saying, OK, look, there are these basic services that uh, have to be in place if we are going to have a sustainable industry. Uh, so let's all agree that these are, you know, they're the essentials, they're the, they're the minimum, uh, and then where there might be other things that industry might want or indeed uh, might be needed, that can be a subject of discussions on a more frequent basis uh, if they're going to be cost recovered. But just really trying to simplify it to stop it being such a difficult process for everybody on an annual basis uh, and to instead hopefully come to I guess a more streamlined system that might be be of benefit to everyone and of course will be cheaper which will in itself uh, mean that there's less cost to recover. Speaking with the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, today, this is a primarily or a report uh, primarily based on the commercial fishing sector, but interestingly there was also a recommendation from the panel around implementation of a recreational fishing licence. Now that is something that uh, the government has not accepted and said that uh, you're not considering. Why is that? So, look, there's a couple of reasons. Um, we made a commitment before the last election that we wouldn't be introducing a recreational fishing licence in this term. Uh, and the discussions around a rec fishing licence were actually out of scope of the terms of reference for this panel. Right, so there's the reasons. Um, I've said on multiple occasions that, um, you know, something like a rec fishing licence to even be considered would have to be uh, really driven and supported by the rec fishing sector, and I haven't seen any evidence of that, so it's not something that we are considering. So it is something off, off the table as far as this government is concerned? Certainly we have no no wish or desire to be pursuing it. It is something that comes up very frequently and I think there is a very diverse set of opinions within the community, including within the rec fishing community. Uh, But in terms of this uh, this report, these two reports, they are about the commercial seafood sector, so rec fishing was not part of that. That's the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven, speaking there about the report from the Independent Cost Recovery Review Panel into the state's seafood sector, and it's 21 minutes to one. Well, farmers in the Riverland are gathering at a crisis meeting today to discuss a way forward amid historically low prices for their grapes. Some wineries are offering growers in the region as little as $120 a tonne for their fruit. Uh, For some perspective, that's the same as they were receiving back in the 1970s. After years of financial strain, families in the country's largest wine-producing region are breaking their silence to call for some support. And Eliza Berlage has the story. 
it's harvest time in Australia's biggest wine-producing region. The Riverland, with its access to plentiful water from the River Murray, is ready to deliver another bumper crop. But for growers here, a good harvest doesn't always mean a good return. Ray Hardigan has chosen not to harvest this year. The 80-year-old retired soldier from Renmark made the hard decision to spray his vines to prevent them from germinating. The chemicals are retardant and you spray it on at bud burst, which stops the flowers developing into grapes. So what we have here is uh, hectares of grape vines with no grapes. Now I had to make that decision because the winery wouldn't guarantee payment, wouldn't guarantee what they were taking and just all round make things impossible to grow. Often when my grapes are being loaded on the trucks out there, I don't know what price I'm going to get for them. Now what other manufacturer, business person would allow their product to go anywhere without knowing what price they were going to get for it? Is this the first year you've ever not delivered a crop? Um, I only delivered half a crop last year, but it's the first year that I've not delivered a full crop, yes. Nearby at Cobb Dogler, third-generation grape grower Peter Arnold says the 2024 low comes after several historically poor years for grape prices. Yeah, well, we were getting the uh, same prices back in uh, the early 70s as we're getting now, and our costs have gone through the roof. Our power, our diesel, our spray materials. So unless you're getting around about $280 a tonne, and that's for person not employing, if you're employing, you probably need 320 a tonne to uh, survive. And Peter, I understand you've pulled out some of your vines in recent years. Yeah, can you explain what you've done there? Well, if they're not making a profit, pull them out. It's pretty simple. No point in going and using your capital that you've put away to keep something going. And uh, especially now, I'm uh, sort of uh, really pleased that my decision was that way. When China put that uh, 218% tax on my good old dad said you've got more than enough just pull it out don't you've got a beautiful place to live but for the others that are trying to make a living out of it and bring up a family it's dire for them the issues confronting the riverland are not unique globally the wine industry is struggling as drinking habits change farmers in europe are protesting as they face potential financial ruin areas that supply so-called bulk wine have been the worst affected in australia that's the riverland the Riverina and Sunraysia, or Murray-Darling region. Together, these warm inland areas supply nearly 70% of the country's wine grape crush. Until recent years, these regions had been flourishing, but increasing costs and a drastic price drop have hit the industry hard. Chinese tariffs and changing consumer demand have meant there are too many grapes, particularly for red wine. Bridget Nolan runs the American-owned The Wine Group, and says while she feels for growers, the global market dictates the price, and some may struggle to stay viable. Cost of production is um, sky high at this point in time. Utilities, employment, um, finding suitable applicants. The whole supply chain is under a huge amount of pressure. The ongoing conflict in the Red Sea is making logistics and freight difficult for everyone. So we're feeling it as much as the growers as well. What sort of support could the industry actually use? I think there has to be an inter intervention at 
a number of levels. Uh, certainly local government, state government and federal need to get involved. Industry bodies need to come together. It's, um, it's very segmented, it's fractured and I think that it, it has to be across the whole industry that we come together and work out what exactly it is that we need but certainly there has to be intervention from those bodies. With 20% of growers considering leaving the industry in the next few years, the local industry is holding a crisis meeting. Among those looking for help are members of the local Punjabi community who have become significant producers. Simi Gill's father moved with his family to the area in 1982. I think this year is like the last year that we um, can make it through, basically. So... We just need to pay off any like debts, finances or anything like whatever we can get from the winery at the moment. It's difficult, but it outweighs the difficulty of where we are sitting currently. And I think you could ask every farmer, each farmer now in the Riverland is wondering, how do we get out of this mess? So it outweighs the where we are stuck. And I think the bigger picture is what the government doesn't realise I understand that the bigger picture is how do we help farmers come out of this mess and if they can then it will yeah reduce the stress because some of us can't sleep at night to be honest some of us are not sleeping some have probably you know have gone into depression and then we've got a lot of angry people asking what's going on. Mintu Bra joined his niece Simi and her family in the region 15 years ago. He's stopped promoting a similar move to his millions of YouTube viewers until the situation stabilises. Lots of Punjabi farmers you can see in the Riverland from last 40 to 50 years. I think nearly 100 to 50 to 200 families are here and uh, they love farming. That's why we was promoting farming, but now I'm telling people, please wait for a couple of years. Charles Matheson is from the region's industry body, Riverland Wine, which found 20% of local grape growers are considering leaving the industry in the next few years. It's not just a local issue either, it's a global issue. And there's no great outlook for red uh, wine grapes for the next foreseeable couple of years. He says substantial mental health issues are emerging. We really need some short-term help though to help pay for things like power bills while people work out what they can do. Hence the meeting is all about working collaboratively across the region to come up with solutions that we can take to all three tiers of government. In a statement, Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said he'd raised the issues faced by the wine industry at a Food and Grocery Code roundtable last week. He said a vine pool scheme would require careful consideration to avoid unintended consequences. The ABC reached out to Accolade Wine for comment, but a response was not received by deadline. Eliza Berlage with that story out of the Riverland. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Here with Selena Green today. Well, Nationals leader David Littleproud says the Four Corners program into the behaviour of supermarkets has highlighted the need for the ACCC to launch an investigation. The Nationals had campaigned for an investigation into claims the two big supermarket chains have been involved in price gouging and profiteering during a cost of living crisis. Well, late last month, the Prime Minister announced the ACCC would look into supermarket pricing. Mr Littleproud says the investigation should have been launched much earlier. Well, look, it reinforced what the Nationals have been saying for some time, is that there is a concentration of power with the supermarkets and we need to do something about it. We've got a government that's been asleep at the wheel. 
18 months ago, I reached out to the competition minister and said the Nationals will help continue the pathway that we had set when we were in government. I don't think we did enough and there was more that needed to be done. I made that very clear to him. 12 months ago, I wrote to him and said, let's bring forward all these reviews and let's not only do the reviews, but let's give the ACCC more power. More power is with punitive penalties. They don't have that at the moment. And unfortunately, this government ignored me, ignored the nationals and said, we don't need it. And then all of a sudden, on the 1st of January, had this epiphany that there was some sort of cost of living crisis that they hadn't realised and thought they better do something about it. Uh, We'd been saying you needed the ACCC to investigate uh, as far back as November because the evidence was clear on meat and fresh produce and that they were the only ones that could compel evidence uh, and compel witnesses. Uh, The Senate inquiry is nothing more than a political stunt with the Greens. It had no substance whatsoever. But if we had brought forward the uh, Emerson inquiry into the Grocery Code of Conduct 12 months ago and put in the penalties of divestiture powers that we have been talking about, then we would have been holding these supermarkets to account a lot long ago. And so what we say to this government is that it is time to stop the reviews and start action. And the Nationals are ready to deal and ready to, to undertake whatever reforms we need significant competitive reforms and we should be courageous we should be courageous because all four corners did last night was validate what everyone from the farm gate through the supply chain that deals with these supermarkets has been saying for some time and it's now time for us as legislators to get in there and have the courage to step in and to interfere in a marketplace that has too much power for two players there was an incident i guess we could call it in the program uh where the ceo of woolworths nearly walked walked out when he was questioned what what did you think of that well i think that just demonstrates that once you tear away the very thin skin of these supermarkets and their ceos there's a very sinister uh, underbody and australian farmers have been feeling that and so too have australian consumers and that's why i take my job seriously and have been for some time in calling for reform uh, and now is the time for leadership. And I just say to everybody who is in, in Parliament to let's show that political leadership because there's mums and dads that are making real-life decisions when they go to a supermarket every day and there are farmers making real decisions at the moment about whether to continue to produce. Uh, and if we continue to go down this path of allowing two supermarkets to dictate terms to us, this country will erode its food security and we will see higher food prices because we'll only be open to imports. One of the topics that came up during it was about uh, the marketing of things like fruit and veg and, and wine and so on. Do you think the big supermarkets are misleading customers with the way they market their, their wine, for example? Yeah, well, this is where we've been calling for the ACCC, who are the, who are the ones that have the power to be able to investigate that and prosecute with that. And that's why uh, all this speculation, and unfortunately we've, we've needed the media to help us uh, unearth this, to say to the government, you have been too slow to get the ACCC into this. That is their job. They are the experts, not politicians. Not a bunch of politicians doing a Senate inquiry. It's actually the ACCC who understand the pricing mechanisms of supermarkets. So why have we taken so long to get them underneath the bonnet of these supermarkets? Uh, The evidence was clear, whether it be with wine, whether it be with meat, whether it be with fresh produce, that the government's been asleep at the wheel, the supermarkets have been taking advantage, and when you had Rod Sims... In June, and I'll give credit where credit June, uh, Rod Sims was there before the Nats. He said in June, we said in November. But Alan Fells, I think, nailed it. Uh, in his inquiry for, for the ACTU, 
has nailed the reforms that we need to bring in place. And, and when that report came out two weeks ago, as Nationals Leader said, it validated what we said, but as a Nationals Leader, I commit myself to helping implement what Alan Fellows has put in his inquiry. That's what the Australian public is expecting of its leadership, of its political leaders. I'm prepared to lead. I'm just saying who's with me. That's the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, speaking with Tim Fuchs. And the news today is that the Woolworths Chief Executive, Brad Banducci, has announced that he is retiring. It is just going on eight minutes to one. Well, how much salt have you come into contact with today? There's a lot of salt in our foods, also in a lot of agricultural products, even products used to suppress dust on roads. If you've used a salt product today, there's a high chance it has come out of a salt field on South Australia's York Peninsula. Cheatham Salt operates solar salt fields and refineries throughout Australia, but their largest salt field is located at Price on the York Peninsula, and this salt field supplies a lot of Australia's food industry, both manufacturing and retail. Our reporter Kate Higgins headed out on site and spoke with CEO Peter Newton about this taken-for-granted commodity. You know, we talk about a day in the life of with salt. So pretty much from when you get up in the morning to when you go to sleep at night, you've come into contact with salt, whether it's the water you drink, the potable water, the, you know, the products that you put on your toast, butter, the actual bread itself, and, uh, and pretty much everything every, during the day, there'll be, there'll be some contact that you would have had with products that are made from salt. And we've got our customers are in all of those segments. We, we often say in the business there's no substitute, and there is no substitute for, um, for salt. We to supply the world's most essential mineral, enhancing life for every person every day. CEO Peter Newton speaking. Site manager David Tornsey explains how the salt fields work. So this is the first start of the start of the process of the first pumping station. Um, so we pump the seawater in, so it's obviously tidal. Um, so we've um, got these two pumps and we've also got a set of pumps which are out a bit further. So there's like two fields that we have. First pumps pump into them into our first pond and that's the, the start of the process of you know working through the growing of the salt. The two pumps here and there are the only first first mechanical side of it that we use and then everything from there is all um, naturally through gravity with um, wind-up gates and that. So yeah, the, the pumping side of thing from electrical or mechanical is that that's the only process. Um, once these two fields then join together, then we use our final little pump that will pump them into the final crystallisation side of things. So, so again, very natural. So, yes, yeah, so an all-natural um, lay of the land, the way it's been um, built over the years. David Tornsey speaking. The topography and climate at Price ensures there is enough production to keep the adjacent factory operating 24-7. But as with other primary industries, salt has its own growing and harvest season. Peter Newton explains. Topography plays a really big part in the uh, location of a stock of a salt field. So the uh, you know, the types of bases that we've got on our ponds out here, um, obviously you want something that's not that porous. Uh, so um, to make sure that we retain the water, and then um, climate plays a major major role in terms of what we do. So uh, the the fields we've got in the southern part of Australia are, are quite defined in terms of seasons. We've got a defined growing season, which generally happens anywhere from about September through to March, April. And then the, um, the season when we're harvesting, which is normally April, May through to about September. And we do the whole cycle over and over again. Like other primary industries, salt is dependent on the weather. But unlike other primary industries found throughout the York Peninsula, salt favours drier conditions. David Tornsey again. What we are, we are very reliant on the weather. Um, so obviously... 
Wind temperature is a key factor for the evaporation process to actually grow the salt. Annually, annually we do a harvest once a year um, at, at this site, and yeah, obviously we bring the seawater in. Um, and there's certain stages through that process where the environment does its stuff to get to the final product, and we have a very um, pure crystal that we grow naturally through our um, fields. Uh, so we generally harvest in the in the winter months because that's where you don't grow salt. So the summer periods is where we get good evaporation, um, good crystal growth. With the with the current impacts of the La Nino um, effects over the last three three years, four years, that has certainly impacted our, our growing seasons. However, yeah, we just continually um, are reliant on the weather. So no different to what we are with, you know, farmers are very similar to weather, weather dependent. In touring the salt fields, the bright pink quality is really striking. But the brightness of the colour is a sign of salt health, says Mr Newton. The pink colour you can see is beta-carotene. Uh, so ultimately um, the salt doesn't stay this colour because you can see by the stacks it's white. Uh, so um, this washes out when we harvest, after we harvest and wash the salt. Yeah, really, I mean, it looks great. A, um, a sign of, uh, a characteristic of a, um, a really healthy, well-operating field. CEO Peter Newton. Inside the factory, the salt is refined into different qualities for a range of different products, many of which will end up on the dinner table. David Tornsey explains how some of the manufacturing process works. So the bagging line is uh, part of the manufacturing area, so 25 kg bag. Uh, this is our premium salt, um, so we polyethylene bag, we, we seal it, we fill it, we put a top seal on it, we then process it, obviously check biometal detectors, all our quality checks on it, uh, and then we palletise out. Uh, once it's palletised, it's a wrap on it to protect the product, um, just like the bulk as it then goes into our warehouse ready to send to our customers. Manufacturing at price is going through a period of investment with phased improvements to the plant completed and planned. The aim is to have different drying technologies, better energy efficiency and more flexibility in the plant to enable adapting to different market demands. The facility has been manufacturing salt here since 1917, so you know, over 100 years. The investment in the business is ensuring that we maintain and are here for another 100 years, so that investment into what the stage one is about is that first process. So it, it is a long process, but it is a, it is a key part of the business. It's the, the biggest investment the business has put into the, um, into the um, site. Um, which will set us up for bringing new technologies in and getting us into the future. A lot of that is, you know, more flexibility in, in how we refine and, and be more targeted at um, certain products. And, and a key strategy is um, around our export, export growth strategy for the business. And with these investments, it is hope price can continue to supply a growing export market. And, uh, and sea salt is in demand internationally and particularly value-added sea salt, which is what we do at, um, at the site here at Price, and all of our sites, but, um, but Price is where we, um, we export. And we've got, we've got a number of markets that are, um, that are growing for us, which is, uh, which is quite good. Peter Newton there from Cheatham Salts in South Australia, ending that story from Kate Higgins. I'll try and squeeze in a few of your comments that have come in through this half an hour because we are heading towards the news. Peter from Nipanola called to say the southeast used to have a thriving aquaculture industry but no longer due to excessive 
fish farming licences. Uh, Salty is sent into text that says, grape growers in the Riverland growing their grapes for the cheap wine industry. Now there's no market. Don't call for government support. Pull out the grapevines and grow something you can sell. So Salty. And John says, if the price of grapes is cheaper this vintage, does that mean the price of this year's vintage is also cheaper? I bet it won't be. Someone should be checking the price per bottle or consumers. That's it for me for today. Deb Tribe will be with you for afternoons today. She'll be talking movies after three. Also, what's for dinner? Adam Leol will be joining her for that and a response to the bushfire risk overlay. Thanks so much for your company. It's time for the one o'clock news. To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.